Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We just uh, celebrated the, the awesome, awesome holiday of Shavuos, which, um, which is the, the giving or the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. So, um, so let me start with a question. And this question is actually, uh, I, want to, I want to reframe this question um, that I'm about to ask and, and show you how it, it actually impacts how you go through life in general. So, so this is this this will be a, a very major idea because um, if we can really um, internalize this this new approach, uh, we can really change the lives that we live in in, in this world, um, and certainly our perception of the lives that we live in this world. Okay, good. So, what's the question? The question is like this: We're receiving the Torah uh, at Mount Sinai on Shavuos. Which is which is a very it's a very very great holiday very awesome okay so so there's a uh, a verse in the Torah it's actually if you if you want to look it up it's actually in 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 Sefer Shmos in the book of Exodus it's chapter nineteen verse one I'll read it to you in English it says in the third month from the Exodus the children of Israel um, I'm sorry, in the third month from the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt, on this day, they arrived at the wilderness of Sinai, meaning to say that on the first day of Sivan, uh, the third month of the year, um, the Jews arrived at Mount Sinai. Okay, so very good. So, so, what's so what is so epic about this phrase? It's very, very epic because it's in the present tense. It says... It says, um, on this day we arrived. And Rashi famously points out that it should say on that day. In other words, it, it's talking about something that happened in the past. And yet it's phrased as something that happens in the present. It says, on this day we got to Mount Sinai. Present tense, on this day. So Rashi says, based on that, that a person has to live life like they are receiving the Torah on this day. Every single day, we have to experience receiving the Torah. Okay, so now we're up to the question. (laughs) The question is, it seems like the great holiday of Shavuos, where we celebrate the annual receiving of the Torah, is, is very much a P.S., Meaning to say, it's, it's, it's sort of like it's not the headline at all. This verse is the headline. This verse is telling us that we have to receive the Torah and live our lives like we're receiving the Torah every single day. So, so it seems like it's Shavuos every single day. That, that, is the epic, that is the epic understanding. This one time a year receiving is, um, you know, kind of a little bit after the fact. So, and yet, it's one of the three major holidays that we would go to Yerushalayim, all the people. It's um, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot. So, Shavuos is not small potatoes. Shavuos is a major, major event on the Jewish calendar in the Torah. So, if that's the case, how do you understand that we're just talking about it as a once-a-year event, 
when the reality is, is that we have to experience it as a daily event? That's our question. And like I said, this actually really um, has implications in terms of how we go through life. And, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, let's address the question. So I would like to, I would like to give this following answer, okay? Which is, where do you get the strength to receive the Torah every single day? Right? Because that's, that, that's a big deal, to be able to actually authentically go through life. Authentically go through life, to be for real. And to receive the Torah anew every single day, where do you get that strength? So what I'd like to say is that you get that strength to receive the Torah every single day on Shavuos. On Shavuos, which is that primary emanation of light, you get the ability and the strength to do it all year round. Okay. So now, that all sounds well and good, but I want to go deeper. I want to show how this impacts, this approach, this question, really impacts our lives in general. You see, because how do you do it, right? We just said you get the strength on Shavuos to do it the whole year, but, but that doesn't tell us how to do it. And so what I would like to suggest is the following. You see, one thing that I've noticed, and this is like something that I think this, this point that I'm about to discuss with you, I think is one of the primary, primary distinctions between people who get it, so to speak, and who don't get it. People who are sincere and who, you know, are very well-meaning on the one side, and people who are actually living it on the other side. Right? So that's, this is a very wide gap that exists between these two camps, okay? So it's just, what is the difference? What is the difference? You know, do you ever meet someone who it's sort of like their Judaism, their, it's so alive, and then there's someone else who's like very careful about the mitzvahs, but they don't exude any sort of energy? It's sort of like they're just, they mean well, but it's just, where's the fire, Right? Okay, so I'm going to tell you the secret, and it's not a secret, but, but people treat it like a secret, so I guess it is a secret, but, but, but this is it. You ready? The question is, are you in a direct relationship with Hashem? In other words, they say that the difference, and of course this was said by the Hasidim, since this is going to be very favorable to the Hasidim, but they say that the difference between the Hasidim and the Misnagdim, who were more sort of scholarly um, in comparison to the Hasidim, is that the Hasidim sort of like had a direct relationship with the Shulchan Aruch, with the Code of Jewish Law, which of course we need to live by, but that their primary relationship was between them and a book, Whereas the Hasidim, their primary relationship was between themselves and God himself. See, that, that makes all the difference in the world. 
See, the way, the way I've put it in, in, at different times is the following. A lot of people look at the world and they say, there's hot dogs and there are, there's the, the nation of France and there's electrons and there's comic books and there's God and there's football. It's like, oh, wait, wait a second, wait a second, back up. Did you just put God on a list of things there are in the world? The entire world is contained within God. Every, all that exists is God. God is the only thing that exists. As Rabbi Green used to like to say, God is the only thing going on 24-7. The only thing going on is God. But a lot of people think that God is one thing of many things that exists in the world. Do you see how different an approach that is? I'll tell you um I'll tell you one application of that. And um and I'll tell it to you as a personal story. Because when I first heard this piece of information years ago, I I was less sympathetic. I'll, I'll tell you what I'm getting at in a moment. And then years later, I finally understood what the rabbis had in mind, and I was very sympathetic. What was it? During the anti-Semitic crise of the, um, the, the, the czarist government, and then it was continued by the, 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 the Soviet government in Russia, they really tried to persecute the Jews and to just close down Torah and, I guess, religion in the country in general. Um, And what they demanded from from the from the great yeshivas and probably the greatest yeshiva in the world at that time was the yeshiva of Volozhin, which had been started by the the, the number one follower Reb Chaim Volozhin of the Vilna Gon, and was really the first modern day yeshiva. You know, just in terms of Jewish history, the way the way it sort of went more or less was that um, there would be a, a, there would be teachers. And teachers would um, teach students individually, or um, uh, the neighbors would would pool together funds, and they would get the children on the block or the neighborhood or whatever it was, and they would they would pay the teacher, and the teacher would teach the children. But the idea of there being a a formal school, what we in today's parlance call a yeshiva, this is a fairly modern uh, invention. And the father of the modern-day yeshiva, as we understand it today, was Reb Chaim of Volozhin. So the Volozhin yeshiva, was, when it was um, set up, was the greatest center of, of Torah and Talmudic learning in, in the Jewish world. And it was like that for many, many years. Now, the Russian government, at a certain point, <clears throat> decided that they had to start teaching secular subjects as well. That they couldn't just be teaching um, Talmud and all the rest. They had to teach math and geography and science. And, and the rabbis refused. They said, no, we're not, we're not going to teach this here. We're just going to teach, you know, the, the, the Jewish subjects. Now, you know, I, I grew up going to, you know, secular places of, uh, 
you know, academics. Um, and like I say, when I, when I first heard the rabbis uh, protest, and let me tell you how far their protest went. They actually closed down, the rabbis themselves closed down Volosian rather than teaching secular subjects. So you have to understand that this is, this was a great loss for the world, a great loss for the Jewish world. The greatest Torah academy refused to assent to the dictates of the Russian government to teach secular subjects to the point where they closed down the greatest academy of Torah in the world rather than do it. And like I say, when I first learned that, I was like shaking my head like, boy, those rabbis, like, why did they do that? Why did they do that? And now, as I told you before, as I got older, and as I raised children who I sent to Jewish schools, to Torah schools, I now understood why the rabbis did what they did. And I can tell you, and it's, it's sort of like a very, very bittersweet um, realization that I've come to, um, which is that the, the modern-day yeshivas, day schools, um, I'm talking about in today's world, are extremely, extraordinarily well-intentioned and, and successful and <clears throat> imbuing children with, with a knowledge of um, how to read Hebrew and how to work with Jewish texts and things like that. So in that, in that way, they, they are doing a fantastic job, and I wouldn't, you know, knock them for a second. However, the very nature of the institutions themselves is that the children go from Chumash class to math to science to Navi, right, studying the prophets, and then they come home and they have their history homework, and they have their science homework, and they have their Chumash, their Jewish studies homework. And they get graded on this, and they have a test in Torah, and then they have a test in math. And hopefully you see the theme that I'm developing here. All the subjects take on the same level of importance. And Torah, tragically, over the years, becomes another subject. Or to return back to our initial phrasing of it, there's hot dogs in the world, and there's France, and there's math, and there's God, right? And there's soccer. What? Did you just put God on a list of things there are in the world? And the rabbis at the Velozhin Yeshiva said, you know something, we're not going to do it. We're not, we're, not, we're not going to turn Torah into another subject. Torah is not another subject. We say Torah Chaim. The Torah is a Torah of life. If you want to be for real, you can't have a relationship with a book. The book informs how you live the relationship. But your relationship is not with the book. The relationship is directly with God. This makes all the difference in the entire world. If you have a direct relationship with God, if you view all of life, 
as an ongoing conversation with God. Every person that you meet in the street, every bill that you have to pay, every conflict that God sends your way, every challenge that you meet, if you understand that this is an ongoing conversation, all the things of this world are an ongoing conversation that you are having with God, that this entire world exists to give you and God something to talk about. (laughs) Something to grow further from, to become closer to Him with. If you understand that, you're living Judaism. You're living Torah at that point. That's what it's about. And like I say, there's so many sincere, super sincere, super sincere. I'm not knocking them for a second. But their primary relationship is with a book. It can't be that way. If you want to be for real, if you want to actually taste what Judaism is, what the tzaddikim were living, what Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, what our holy mothers were living, They were living this ongoing relationship with God and they were cleaving to God. Okay, so now we we have to get back to our question. Our question is, all right, I I hear that on Shavuos itself, I'm getting the strength to receive the Torah every single day, but how do I receive the Torah every single day? All right, now that I have the strength to receive the Torah every single day, How do I do it? So the first thing is that I have to understand that the only thing that exists is God. And the Zohar says God and the Torah are one. The Torah, so to speak, is God's mind. And remember, God doesn't have a body. God makes bodies. God is beyond, 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 beyond. At the same time, he couldn't be closer. He fills the entire world And the only reason why you can blink an eye or move a finger is because you have a piece of him inside of you. God fills the world and exists beyond the world. And so to speak, the mind of God, that's the Torah. If you want to be speaking the same language as God, to have that closer than close relationship, That's through the Torah itself, because that's the revolution, the revolution, it is a revolution, but the revelation of all of the, all of the infrastructure, all the building blocks, all the mechanics, all the wiring of the world. Those are the Torah and the mitzvahs, the letters of the Torah. Okay, so now I want to tell you something that came to me on Shavuos. You know... Imagine you're with someone who you're very, very close to, right? Imagine it's your love, the love of your life, right? And it's just the two of you. It's you and the love of your life. Now, imagine that person is speaking to you, right? It's very, very nice. But now imagine that person is singing to you. Just to you. Just the two of you. And they're singing to you. 
It's a whole nother level. It's a whole nother level. The Torah is called a song. It says, it says in the Torah itself, write down the words of this song. The Torah calls itself a song. I'll tell you something the Gomorrah says. There, there are ten songs that are waiting to be revealed in the world. Nine of them, nine of the ten have already been revealed in the world. We're waiting for the tenth song to be revealed into the world. And if you look throughout Tanakh, you'll find nine songs. But we're waiting for that tenth song. Now it says, one of the great miracles of all of Jewish history happened um, during the reign of King Chazikiah. And the Gomorrah says King Chazikiah could have been the Mashiach. Right? Because Mashiach can come at any moment, which means that there's always, there's always that great holy person who has the potential to become that person. Right? So King Chazikiah in that day could have become Mashiach. And God made one of the greatest salvations in all of history for the Jewish people at that time. King Sencherev, who was one of the greatest um, of the ancient warrior kings in, in, in history, had already dispersed the 10 tribes of Israel. You know, there are 12 tribes. And we talk about the 10 lost tribes. Well, who, how did the 10 lost tribes get, get lost? Sancherev, this king conquered what was then known as the Northern Kingdom of Israel. And he dispersed those 10 tribes and scattered them throughout the lands. Okay. He was right on the border of Yerushalayim about to finish conquering the Jewish people and just obliterating the name of Israel for all of history, Chas Shalom. And all of a sudden, that night at midnight, this was Pesach night, by the way, the entire army died of a great plague. It was amazing, amazing, total miracle. God saved the entire Jewish people. And you know what it says? That King Chazikiah didn't sing. And because he didn't sing as a way of thanking God and as a way of sort of like commemorating this awesome miracle, this world-class miracle, right, that God had done, he didn't become Mashiach. See, it says that in certain generations, the people are worthy but the leader is not worthy. And that in other generations, the leader is worthy, but the people aren't worthy. So this was an example where the people were worthy, but the, but the leader wasn't worthy because he didn't sing a song. So do you see the greatness from here of what it means to sing? And by the way, that would have been the 10th song. Do you see, do you see what it means to sing? And you know, just to kind of put it into uh Quantum physics, this is just me talking, but, you know, when you sing, especially when we sing at the Happy Minion, right? When you sing, you know the whole energy in the room jumps a quantum level. You know it. And when the singing is really, like, beyond, like all the heavens are opening up. You, you know what the power of song is. 
You, you know what it is. And by the way, you know, one of the famous connections um, in, in Torah, we have this word for prayer, v'yeschanan, which is Gematria 515. And v'yeschanan means prayer. And 515 is also the Gematria of Shira, which means song. So you see, song and prayer are like very, very closely linked. But song is sort of like the, the jet rockets of prayer, which allows the energy and the soul just to blossom and to rocket to a place beyond. The Mojitsa Rebbe, who is one of the great composers of, of modern Jewish music, modern meaning the last couple hundred years, and was one of the primary influences of Reb Shlomo Karlbach, by the way. Um, in fact, a couple of the, the, the classic songs of, of Reb Shlomo are Mujitzer songs, you know? I, I can't sing, but I'll just give you one example. The Havdalah that, that we sing. Okay, so that's that's for me one of my all-time favorite melodies. Um, that's the Mojitzer Rebbe, right? So, so, uh, so the Mojitzer says. See, there's a there's kind of like a uh, a saying that we say, like a Jewish saying. I, I don't know what the source of it is, but they say that. Um, that the the that the palace, the heichel, the palace of song, is right next to. In we're talking about in terms of the uh, heavenly, the heavenly mat making, the heavenly cartography, right? Um, that the the heichel, the palace of song, is right next to the heichel, the palace of tshuva, right? Which which is very beautiful because. Um, you know, when you're, when you're singing, when you're singing, you're, you're feeling that, that closeness to God. You're able to connect with God in that way that we were talking about earlier. You're in a relationship. You're experiencing that relationship. You're living that closeness while you're singing. So, so they say, based on that, that the palace of song in Shemayim in heaven is right next to the palace of return. Right? Because then when you come close and you say, God, I just I want to remain close. I don't want to do anything ever. I never want to do anything wrong again. I never want to part from your side, God. Right? You're experiencing that, that emotion. So you see how the palace of song is right next to the palace of return. But the Moshe Tzarebi says something so much deeper. You ready for this? He says the palace of song is the palace of return. They're not right next to each other. They're one and the same. So when we say that the Torah is a song, when the Torah itself, when we say that the Torah is the mind of God, that the Torah is a song, if you want to be inside, if you want to be right there, if you want to have that exquisite closeness, you have to be singing the song. Okay, so now let's get into the mechanics of song. Let's do it. 
Let's do it. Let's do it. So we know from Perkei Avos, and by the way, just so you know where we're going with this next thought, okay, we're deepening the conversation right now. But I want to tell you, a very deep connection between creation and the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. See, because that's really what it's all about. And that's really the essence of this talk. We've got more to say, but let's let's just say it outright. When you're receiving the Torah, you're tapping into the creation of the world itself. I'm going to say it again. When you're living the Torah, when you're receiving the Torah, when you're in that direct relationship with God, what you're doing is you are tapping into the wellspring of the ongoing creating of the world itself on an ongoing basis. You are becoming part of the endless flow of the continuation of the creation of the world in the moment itself. That's what Torah gives you the power to do. That's what it means to sing the song of creation. It's to be part of the creation. It's, it's, it's to be part of the creation as the world is being created, which is going on every single day, every single moment. And the Torah gives you that, that, that ability to enter into the process and to become a living part of the process of creation. And you see it in so many beautiful ways. And I'll tell you just one of the most powerful ways for me that you see it. The, the word that, that um, introduces the giving of the Torah, right? It's the, it's the phrase right before the word, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am Hashem your God, which is the first commandment, the commandment to believe in God, that God gave in Mount Sinai. But before then, you've got this totally innocent little verse. This little verse that's just <laughs> completely incognito. You ready? Because it sounds like nothing. Okay, I'm going to read it to you and it's completely disguised form and then we'll, we'll uncode it. Okay, in Hebrew it says, Vayedaver Elohim es hadavarim ha'ele lemur, which means God spoke all these statements saying, Okay, so doesn't sound like much. And then we get to the meat, right? Then we get to the Ten Commandments, which contains the whole Torah. Okay, so what's contained in this phrase? God spoke all these statements saying. So if you look at the Balaturim, he says there's only one other phrase in the whole Torah that has seven words and 28 letters like that verse does. And you ready for this? You know what it is? In the beginning, or out of beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. So there you see it, right there in the Torah itself, how the giving of the Torah is part and parcel with the ongoing, continuous creation of the entire universe. And when you're living the Torah, when you're singing the song, you're part of that flow 
of the creation of self and creation of the world. Okay, so now I want to add an insight that kind of came to me on Shavuos. See, it says in Perkei Avos that with ten sayings, the Aseris Mamaris, right, the ten sayings, God created the world. So that was the, let there be light. Let there be human beings. Right? So there were nine of those. And the tenth, let there be, is actually just the word brachis. And so there you have the ten sayings that God created the world with. But we have another amazing ten, right? The Ten Commandments. The Aseris Adibros, right? So, so what's the difference between the ten utterances that God created the world with and the Ten Commandments that God said at Mount Sinai. So I want to say the following. You see, those ten utterances that God spoke the world into creation with. So so I saw in one place that Reb Shlomo said that God sang the world into creation. And I always loved that, but I always kind of scratched my head. How do, where does it say that God sang the world into creation? Like the famous teaching is that, like from Pirkei Avos, God spoke the world into creation. And then years later, I saw from the, quoted the Tekune Zohar, that says if you take the word Breshis, and the Zohar says that the whole, all of the Torah is in the word Breshis, Right? If you take all the letters of Breshis and you rearrange them, it spells the words Shiras Olive Bays, the song of the Olive Bays. And of course, we know the Torah teaches that God created the entire universe with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, with the letters of the Olive Bays. And if you want to think of it in terms of like physics, each of the letters is a different energy wavelength. And God took all these energies and combined them to make the world. So, Breshis, creation, the first, let there be, right? Actually means the song of the Olive Bays. So, the ten sayings, that's the music of creation. That's the music of creation. And the Ten Commandments... Those are the lyrics, right? You want to know the words of the song? The mitzvahs are the words of the song. So the whole world is a song. But if you want to sing the words of the song, right? I don't know if you've ever had this um, experience. I'm not so musical, so I've definitely had this experience. Where you've sort of like da da dee da dee da uh, you kind of know the melody, but you don't know the words, and then you learn the words. It's a whole different experience <laughs> when you know the melody and the words. Oh, you're rocking at that point. You're rocking at that point. You're in harmony. You are in harmony. Right? Because you've got the inside and you've got the outside. 
and they're seamlessly flowing together and you're living it. You're living the song. So the mitzvahs themselves, the mitzvahs themselves, the Torah, the words of the Torah themselves, these are the lyrics of the song. And now I want to go even deeper. You know, if you read the account of the creation of the world, at Mount Sinai, what happened at Mount Sinai? It tells you, and it, 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 it's, this is a detail that obviously is very important to God, because he includes it about five different times in just a few different verses. It just keeps on coming up at the moment of revelation itself. And that's the word ashan, ayin shin nun. Ashan means smoking. It says over and over, the mountain was smoking. Ashan, ayin shin nun. Now, the Kabbalists, we're going to look at that word because if God keeps on telling us at this climactic moment in all of human history, keeps on using this word ashan, Obviously, it's an important word, so we got to figure out what does it tell us about the nature of the revelation itself, right? I mean, just from a writing standpoint, it already says there was a giant cloud over the mountain, that there was thunder and lightning, and that we could see the sounds, right? Remember that, that great fancy word, synesthesia, where, where you can hear colors, and you can see sounds, right? It's this molding of the senses. It says that our souls flew out of our bodies, right? So, so we were actually experiencing reality in a completely, you know, beyond, totally epic way. So with that in mind, with that as the context, we have to understand what does this word ashan, smoking, mean? Because you've already got like all the details that you need. The mountain is on fire, it says. It's shaking like crazy. There's thunder and lightning and a a chauffeur blast that's only getting louder. By the way, it says by human beings, when you blow the chauffeur, it gets louder and louder, and then it stops, or it gets softer and softer. At a certain point, a human being runs out of breath. But at Mount Sinai, it says it got louder and louder, and louder, and louder. And you want to hear something super cool? It doesn't say, the verses in the Torah do not say that it ever stopped. And you want to hear something even cooler than that? The Baal Shem Tov says, any time a person has what we call a an awakening, an awakening, a, a thought in their heart, just a, a feeling in their soul, you know, an emotion. This world is so great. Life is so precious. I, I want to live the best life. I, I want to do the right thing. I want to be good. The Basham Tov says at that moment, do you know what's happening? Your soul is hearing the sound of the shofar from Mount Sinai, the sound of the shofar that never stopped. That never stopped. 
And now I'll tell you something, you know, like when you're a kid, they won't teach you this. But, you know, as we get older, we have to be realer, right? So, so we have to know what the Torah is saying. You know, there's a famous incident, and I was learning this from Rabbi Trugman. There's a famous incident in the Torah, we all know it, about Yehuda and Tamar. Of course, it's a long story, but the idea is that Tamar disguised herself as as a woman who was available to be purchased, right? Temporarily. Of course, she was one of the greatest, greatest holy women of all time. She's mother of Mashiach, right? And Yehuda sees her by the side of the road and he has relations with her. And um, and what comes from that that togetherness is the messianic line, right? King David can be traced back to that to that union. And it says that that the relations after that moment ceased. But it's unclear what it means ceased, because believe it or not, there's another opinion that says that that very phrase, it ceased, means it didn't cease. Which means that this relationship that began in this very sort of um, surprising way between Yehuda and Tamar, eventually Yehuda realized who she was. Tamar, of course, knew who Yehuda was the whole time and was doing it only l'shem shamayim, just in order to to bring these holy souls into the world. Once they understood who they were, that the relationship then continued, and it didn't cease. And believe it or not, that same phrase, which is talking about how the relations between Yehuda and Tamar, which are this closeness, which is bringing Mashiach into the world, never ceased. That same phrase is used by the shofar blast on Mount Sinai. Those exact words are used by the shofar blast on Mount Sinai that it never ceased. Do you understand what this means? Do you understand how awesome this is? That means that that closeness, that intimacy, our souls were flying out of our bodies. Right? That aspect of Hashem that's inside each of us was flying out of our bodies and merging again with Hashem. That cleaving that was taking place at Mount Sinai has never stopped. It's never stopped. And the Torah is giving you an idea of this in the most intimate terms of how it's never stopped. This is how we have to go through life. This is what it means that you're in an ongoing relationship with God. This is what it means to cleave to God. This is what it means to be in an ongoing love affair with God. Because every single moment you're being created and every single moment the Creator is there merging with you. And he's giving us this entire field of colors. I mean, imagine like, you know, what kind of painting can you paint with three colors? 
Now imagine what kind of painting you can paint with like an infinite number of colors. God is giving us an infinite variety of experiences and the tools, the mitzvot to... What does mitzvah mean? The, the, the root of the word mitzvah means to join. It means to connect. He gives us an infinite array of experiences and an infinite array of... Well, not an infinite array of mitzvahs, but, but the mitzvahs, in order to take those experiences and to create that song, to combine the song and the lyrics, to make that closeness... Such that the Baal Shem Tov says that any time you have a good thought and you want to come closer, that's your soul hearing the blast from Mount Sinai that never stopped. Okay, so we have to get back to the smoking mountain, right? What I'm telling you is that the details that are already there are so awesome, right? They're so awesome. That, that what do you need? The mountain was smoking, right? <laughs> you, you don't need it. Okay, so now let's get to it. The Sefer Yetzirah, which is even older than the Zohar, right? It's the most ancient Kabbalistic text. And it's so revered in Judaism that they say, who wrote it? They want to know who wrote the Sefer Yetzirah. So there are different opinions. Adam Harishon wrote it. The very first person wrote it. Avram Avinu wrote it. Rabbi Akiva wrote it. And you know something? When you've got that lineup of names, it doesn't matter who wrote it. What it means is, is that whatever is contained in there is the Holy of Holies. So the Sefer Yetzirah says that all of reality can be boiled down into three separate, like, um, distillations. Okay? So, so that's, that, that's headline news. All of reality can be boiled down into one of three things, three, three categories. Space, Right? meaning a place, time, and soul. And what's so interesting is, is that in science, we're so used to hearing about the time-space continuum. But Torah is so much deeper. Time, Torah talks about the time-space-soul continuum. And actually, if you know a little bit about the Heisenberg effect, Heisenberg was a great physicist and he was able to prove that the very act of observing reality influences reality itself. So in other words, the impact of the, the, the person or the soul, I'm adding the word soul, they don't, they don't talk in terms of soul, but that the human component, which we'll call soul, Physics also acknowledges is one of the essential ingredients of reality, since the act of observation influences reality itself. Okay, so again, the Sefer Yitzhira says time, space, and soul. Now the word ashan, smoking, is an acronym. Ayin, 
stands for Olam, that's space. Shin stands for Shana, which is year, which means time. And Nun stands for Nefesh, which means soul. So the word Ashan, the fact that the mountain was smoking, stands for this distillation of all the fundamental components of reality itself, time, space, and soul. Olam Shana Nefesh. Again, when we experience the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai, we had this complete extra-dimensional experience. And what God showed us was that all of time, all of soul, and all of the material universe itself is infused with Torah. That the very DNA of every aspect of creation is infused with Torah. That everything is Torah. It's all Torah. So let's return back to our initial questions. Where do I get the strength to receive the Torah every single day? So I wanted to suggest that on Shavuos you get the uh, you get the strength to receive the Torah every single day. But that's not enough. I have to know how to do it. And the way to do it, the way to do it, is to understand that the world itself is a dynamic construct. It's an ever-changing dynamic construct. And that you yourself, all of us, are part of this dynamic construct. And that if we want to tap into the wellspring of the energy of creation itself, the way we do it is through the mitzvahs, and the way we do it is by having that direct connection with Hashem itself, not to have an, a lifelong connection with a book where it's me and a book. No! Between me and God Himself, the author Himself, the singer Himself. As Rabbi Aaron put it so dramatically, so fantastically one time, God is the singer and we are the song. <laughs> God is the singer and we are the song. And I don't know if you can say it better than that. So, so Ravi Nachman, Ravi Nachman says, you know, if everything's going wrong, everything's falling apart, just say to yourself, I'm going to begin again right now. And, and, and now we know where we get the power to begin again right now. Because, you know, the Torah is being created anew. The world is being created anew every single moment. And you know something? You're, you're, you're running to catch the train and ah, uh, the doors close before you can get on and the train goes away. Guess what? There's another train right there. <laughs> There's another train right there. And then you miss that. You know what? There's another train right there. 
We just begin again, we begin again, we never stop beginning again. And so, so, so the way to concretize that, again, all these things might still just be ideas and suggestions, but here's the final point I want to make. If you want to make it most real in your life, if you want to make what I'm talking about, what the Torah is saying, these aren't my ideas, by the way, this is what the Torah is saying, if you want to get to this point that we're talking about in the most real way, then we have to follow the advice of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who says, talk to God like he's your best friend. You have to talk to God every single day. And you say, well, I pray every day. Well, for 99% of the people, that's a fabulous example of a relationship between you and a book. It's, it's, it's the opposite of what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you're making coffee. I'm talking about when you're driving in your car. I'm talking about, you know, when you're in a supermarket. God made it even easier for us now. He put a mask over our face so we can walk down the street. We can walk down the aisles of the supermarket talking to God all we like. No one's... First he gave us Bluetooth so everyone would just assume that we're on a phone call. Now he's made it even easier. <laughs> I was doing it the other day. I was walking down the street talking to God and I was like, this is so great. I'm like having a private conversation with God in public. This is fantastic. God, you made it so easy for me. But that's the only way you can do it. You know, it says God spoke the world into creation. In other words, words make things real. When you speak to God and you speak to him about this and that, when you speak to him like he's your best friend in the entire world, you make that relationship real in a way that nothing else does. And then you can begin to sing the song, and then you can realize the extent that you are the song. Okay, have a great week. What follows now are some questions. In terms of why Shfu is only two days, because... As, as you're pointing out, it's, it's one of the big three. You've got uh, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, and those are seven days, and Shavuos is, is the epicenter. It's, 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 it's the epicenter of everything, and seemingly it should be um, at, least, at least seven days. Well, I can give you a, a technical answer, but then I want to give you maybe a, a more meaningful answer which is that um, the time of Shuas, the Gomorrah explains that the, there was a certain sacrifice that you were supposed to bring for, for all three uh, of the great pr- pilgrimages, including Shuas, and that that time to bring the sacrifice was extended on Shuas beyond the day itself, meaning to say that the, um, the essence of the observance of the holiday, bringing that special Shuas sacrifice, had the same length of time um, as the um, as Sukkot and Pesach for their special sacrifice. So, in other words, um, this is again a technical answer. I'll give you maybe a more meaningful answer in a moment. But but so um, on a nitty gritty level, it still had the same status as the other holidays. Okay, that's a technical answer. On a more meaningful level, perhaps. Shavuos is all about basically obliterating time and space. Um, 
And what I mean by that is there, there are several examples. We can go through them um, pretty quickly, showing you how Shvuas de- defies being pinned down. And, and the fact that it's one day in Israel, by the way, it, it, we say it's two days outside of Israel, but it's even sort of um, m- more stark because Shvuas, and, or rather Sukkot and Pesach are seven days in Israel. Shvuas is only one day. So it's an even greater question. Why is it only one day, right? Um, so every holiday in the Torah has a calendar date in the Torah. For instance, Yom Kippur is the, it says in the Torah itself, it's the 10th day of the seventh month. Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the seventh month. Pesach, the 15th day of the first month. Sukkot, the 15th day of the seventh month. But what about Shavuos? It says, count seven weeks from Pesach. It, there's no calendar date. In other words, it's specifically given in a way to defy being pinned down. I'll give you another example. There's a debate in the Gomorrah itself. Was the Torah given on the sixth day of Sivan or the seventh day of Sivan? So we, we observe it on the sixth day of Sivan. But Rabbi Yossi, you know, has a very powerful argument to say that it was given on the seventh day of Sivan. So again, even the, the giving of the Torah itself has, um, you know, defies a calendar day. And I'll tell you something else. Mount Sinai lost its status as a holy place the moment the Torah was finished being given. Me- meaning to say that even the place where the Torah was given by by God's own decision, sort of like went from a place where if you touch it, you die. No one can touch it. If an animal touches it, it will die on the spot. Kind of think of Nadav and Avihu running into the Holy of Holies, like their souls flew out of their bodies, right? Same thing at Mount Sinai. Don't touch the mountain. As soon as the Torah was finishing being revealed, it says anyone can go on the mountain. And in fact, we don't even know exactly which mountain is Mount Sinai. Something as crucial as Mount Sinai, the location of Mount Sinai, the Jewish people of all people would have a very strict tradition as to where it was. But what, so why don't we? Why was it meaningless? And the answer to all of these questions is that the Torah is for every place at all times. That is the message that comes from this. That's why one day suffices. Because that one day, imagine, imagine a power plant. And some of these power plants can go on for city blocks, okay? You've got endless coils and generators everywhere. But you've got one main on switch, right? This whole giant factory, you've got one main on switch. The Torah is the on switch for all of creation. It doesn't have to take up a lot of real estate. It's just like the Jewish people. The Jewish people, very small people, but the Jewish people, everyone is participating. All the nations of the world have mitzvahs. They all have the Sheva mitzvahs, B'nai Noach. Everyone participates in the Torah. We're all God's children. But you know what? 
The Jewish people have a special leadership responsibility, and that's the on switch. Doesn't have to take up a lot of real estate. Doesn't have to take up a lot of real estate in terms of numbers of people. Doesn't have to take up a lot of real estate in terms of calendar dates. It's the epicenter. And the epicenter is teaching us that it's true for all times and all places. But but here's an example of, you know, like a relationship going from like, you know, great to awful. Okay, in like 30 seconds. It starts off like this. God, you know something? I see that you're the only thing that exists in the entire universe. It's you and it's only you. Nothing happens without you. I love you so much. God, you know something? In my heart, I would so much like this particular blessing. And I know only you can bestow this blessing because you're so great and you run the entire world. God, why haven't you bestowed this blessing yet? <laughs> God, I'm, I'm looking to you. God, do you hate me, God? You must hate me. So you see how it went from a beautiful place to like, you know, like the Hindenburg going down in flames, right? Because what happens is, and this is a very human, natural thing. So a person shouldn't kick themselves if they fall into this, but they should be able to diagnose this if they they have fallen into this trap, is that what people will do is, they will at a certain point, and they're coming from the best, most sincere place. I really mean that. What people will do is they will narrow the focus of their relationship to God to one or two things. And basically the hidden conversation that starts to take place is, God, you can give me this. And if you don't give me this, then basically the relationship is over. Right? Or I am just, you know, in the relationship with you, but I am in the relationship with you as, a, as an abused partner, right? As like, you know, and, and the tragedy of that happening, and it, unfortunately it happens very, very frequently, is that God is giving us every breath. God is waking us up in the morning that, that great cup of coffee you had in the morning was as much from God as a sign of love as anything. That, you know, and, and, and millions of examples over the course of the day. So, so we then begin to view and treat God as the one who is withholding his love and withholding his kindness from us. Whereas if we were to document our day from the moment that we wake up, the fact that we even wake up, which is a total miracle, to the time we go to sleep, we would run out of paper writing down all of the things that God has done for us. And somehow none of that counts because we've decided this is the only thing that is important in our lives. So what I think what Rabbi um, uh, Brody is doing in a very brilliant way is he's isolating a point of disconnect where if we're asking for a specific thing, then we can fall into this trap of, God, why are you abusing me, essentially, right? As, as opposed to bringing our, our needs to God, which we have to do. But he's saying if you bring them to God on the level of yearning, you can have the best of both worlds. That's what I'm understanding he's saying. Where you can be real, where you can bring what's m- most important and crucial to your life because you don't want to not bring that to your best friend. I mean, of course. 
but at the same time not hold the relationship hostage to that one thing. Yes. Yes. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them. <laughs>